The reading is taken from Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, and I'm beginning at verse 19. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I'm perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the, th of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is God's word. Sarah, thank you very much. And um, uh, let me add my welcome morning to you. Uh, my name is uh, Matt Fuller. Great to have you with us uh, as we're uh, working our way through this uh, book of Galatians. Now, if I'm honest, there are some things, um, sometimes you come to uh, uh, a passage in the Bible, and it's very good as a general rule to uh, work your way through uh, various different books of the Bible, and let's God set the agenda. And you come to some parts and think, oh, this is fabulous. I can't wait to to preach this, to share it. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the benefits, the privileges of adoption, you think, oh, just wonderful. And then this week, you sort of sit down at the beginning of the week and think, okay. <laughs> okay. Hagar and Sarah, and oh, this historical background, and oh, my goodness me, Paul, you, you oh, really? Um, uh, but I was rebuked a little bit by uh, remembering just the, what's going on here. That's why we uh, began the reading at chapter 4, verse 19. What Paul is doing is pleading with these people in uh, modern-day Turkey, the region of Galatia, to say, look, I, I love you so very, very much. I am desperate that you don't make a mistake and drift away from the freedom you have in Jesus Christ. I, 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 I'm tearing my hair out. And what you need to know is this, surprisingly. We may be surprised by that. He says, you need to know this. 
Um, so it's not just an obscure history lesson. There's nothing in the Bible which is just about gaining knowledge. It's always to affect us. God speaks to change us, not just to inform our little brains. Um, and Paul is pleading here, so he thinks this is very important. And really where he's going in this is to be a Christian is to be free. That's his point. To be a Christian is to be free. That's where we're ending, chapter 5, verse 1. And if you... If you don't know freedom in the Christian life, if the Christian life doesn't feel like a life of freedom, then there's something a little wrong in that. Now, we won't get all the way uh, uh, today. Um, uh, Chapter 5 is fairly significant in this regard as well, and we get onto it uh, in the early spring. But we we could get the the sense of freedom wrong, so let's try and define it a little bit today of uh, what a biblical freedom is. Let me try and do it in this way. Uh, three little people, well, three people, three scenarios. Uh, one would be Arena. Uh, Arena is a, uh, a woman in her 20s who um, was bought on the internet by a man in Shepherd's Market and sex trafficked into London and uh, coerced into uh, marrying him. And so Arena is a trophy wife. Uh, to all intents and purposes, she's a glamorous prostitute because she has no choice. She's forced to marry the man, uh, forced to do what he wants. She has no income, no identity papers, no passport of her own, so she can't go anywhere or do anything. Um, or she'd go to the authorities, she'd just get deported. And her life is quite good. I mean, she has lots of money lavished upon her, but at once she's enslaved to the man's wishes. She can do nothing without him. There's, there's slavery there. There's rules imposed upon her. It's obviously slavery. Uh, another man will be Don. Uh, Don is, uh, is a homeless guy. He, uh, he lives uh, uh, at, um, on the streets at Waterloo. And uh, Don, if you happen to engage him in conversation, will delightfully tell you, I am free. I am free from what anyone, I can do whatever I want. No one tells me what to do. No one imposes burdens upon me. No one tells me to get to the office on time. I am a free man. And you think, well, you know, okay, kind of, Don. Um, I'm not sure I'd swap my life for yours. Uh, and yet there's a sense in which many people, a very broad, worldly sense, think of that as freedom. Uh, freedom is no restraints upon you. Freedom is I can do what I want. And many, I think, you know, secular mindset, that's freedom. No one telling me what to do. No limits upon me. But of course, on the other hand, Don is enslaved. I mean, there's, there's no freedom of... Uh, income or, or housing. I mean, he has great wants. He wants probably relationship. He wants affection. He wants warmth. He wants clothing. You know, so there's slavery in a different sort of sense. Okay. They look very different, but in a sense, they're both arena and Dom would be enslaved in their different ways. Uh, and then the third character would be Mark. Mark is uh, married to Sally. And um, he, um, he is constrained by that marriage, in a sense, uh, because when he goes to work, he is faithful to his wife. And when he comes home, he helps his wife and with the children and serves her. And there's a sense in which someone could say to him, oh, you're constrained, aren't you? Why didn't you break free? But he says, what are you talking about? I adore my wife. I love her. I'll quite happily give up freedom to go out drinking with the boys till 3 a.m. I'll give all that up because I love my wife. So I'll happily constrain my freedom. That's a, that's a delight. I love it. I love giving up my freedom because I love her. 
Now, that's a biblical sort of freedom. It really refers to us like caricatures. No one quite lives that way uh, in, a, in a sort of Christian sense. But the third is a biblical view of freedom. When you become a Christian, Jesus Christ sets you free to live for him because you desire to. Not perfectly. Uh, you know, we ebb and flow a little bit. But essentially, that is why he has died, to set us free. So our desire when we wake up each morning is, I want to obey my God. I want to live for him. I want to love him. Now, before everyone thinks, oh, I don't feel like that every morning when I wake up, the first thing I think when I wake up is, ooh, um, or slap on an alarm clock. Look, no, no. Look, none of us perfect in this regard, but that is a biblical view of freedom, which we, in a sense, grow into as we grow up as Christians. We're free to do what we want because it is to serve and love and treasure our God. So that's the freedom uh, we're speaking of or, or thinking about. Certainly, it's the freedom that Paul has in mind. Um, and, and that's what he's addressing. So if you remember where we've come from in, in chapter 4, chapter 4 has largely been, don't move from the slavery of Don, a sort of immoral, you can do what you want, you can live a, a pagan lifestyle, which the Galatians would have done as pagans in the Roman Empire. Don't move from that sort of slavery of Don to the sort of slavery of arena, constrained by rules thinking it's slightly better to live a life which is based on obedience. Don't, that's just you're moving from one sort of slavery to another sort of slavery. Don't do that. Live in the freedom you have as children of God. Freedom. That's the Christian life. Let me just say uh, one other thing before we uh, jump in and, and look at the text in detail, which is just to, to pull out an issue which may distract us otherwise, of verse 24. Now, you may not care about this. Some, lots of people do, and let me explain that most people do in one sense. Paul says in verse 24, he's talking about the Old Testament story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, and says, these things can be taken figuratively. And uh, sometimes people say, oh, okay, can I do that when I read the Bible? Can I do that? Because you know, sometimes I don't really like what it says, um, can I take it sort of figuratively? Uh, love your neighbor. Well, I mean, to my mind, that means not my neighbors, but those at number 17 who I get on quite well with. I mean, you can't take it literally. It's just, you know, um, can we do that? Can we just pick anything in the Old Testament and say, well, what it means to me is I like to take it as, or uh, as it's often or sometimes put to me, um, by... Um, uh, other ministers, sort of liberal-minded ministers, who say something like, or, or explicitly, is that you read the Bible literally, I read the Bible figuratively. You can't tell me that that's any less valid. Well, yeah, I can. <laughs> Actually, let me, let's just explore that for a moment. Imagine you, um, you uh, took your car to be serviced, you have a car, take a car to be serviced, and uh, you drop it off in the morning, and it's not a big deal, not a great deal. And you say to the mechanic, look, I have to have my car at 5 o'clock. Is that all right? No problem, sure. Listen, I have to take the car at 5 o'clock, okay? Uh, if you can't do that, I'm not leaving it today. I have to take my car at 5 o'clock. Yeah, no problem, Gov. Off you go. And um, away you go. 5 o'clock, you come back and say, can I have my car, please? And he says, oh, look, here's a, here's a little scooter. Here's a child's push scooter for you. 
were you, were you talking about? I said I had to have my car at five o'clock. I know, I know you may have meant that literally. I chose to took your words figuratively. You just wanted, you know, I just, to my mind, you're basically saying, I just wanted some transport. Here's some transport. I mean, how was I to know you meant it literally? To me, I chose to take it figuratively, and you can't tell me I'm wrong. Well, you know, we just don't work that way. You, you need to give some credence. You need to take seriously the intention of the speaker. You have to take that seriously. Or to flip it around the other way, you know, you, you dinner with uh, someone you know, they tell a great, ja great gag, and you start roaring with laughter, and you say, oh, you kill me. And they pull out a gun, and they start shooting. What are you, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, you said, you kill me. That's a command. I was taking you seriously at that point. No, 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 that's not what I meant. I didn't mean that. Well, you, I don't care what you meant. I chose to take it as... You can't do that. That's nonsensical. We see that, don't we? That's, you have to take what the original speaker meant seriously. Otherwise, it's just everything breaks down. Just so when we come to the scriptures, the original intent of the author matters. You can't just come to any part of the Bible and say, well, yes, I know, he might have meant that, but to me... I choose to take it as, I, for me it feels a bit like, and you can't tell me what I'm feeling is invalid. Well, you know, what the author intended matters. It matters. So, uh, just a little caveat. Now, what is Paul doing here? Well, he's not imposing just an arbitrary meaning on an Old Testament passage or text. We'll see that. But we're not free to do what he does here. He is... An apostle, if you hear, it seems like months ago, it was months ago, when we were in chapter one, uh, he is commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. We're not. We're not in the same way. So we're not free to do what he does here. Okay, I maybe may not have cared about any of that at all, but um, uh, worth thinking through, because some people sometimes argue like that. Freedom, that's what we're thinking about. Uh, three little things uh, we look at. Here's how it breaks down. I think there are two sons, there are two covenants, and there are two applications, so that's simple. Uh, let's get into it. Verse 21. Uh, Paul says, Tell me then, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Now, he means it in two different senses. You who want to be under the law, that is, relating to God on the basis of obedience. Remember we've said the essential mistake in this book is people are saying, okay, believe in Jesus Christ, good. Now you must add obedience to the law, and that equals salvation. Faith in Christ plus law obedience equals salvation. No, 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 no. Faith in Christ, that's salvation. Stop. Full stop. That, that's it, says Paul. Um, so uh, those who are, want to be under the law, that is relating to God on the basis of law obedience, are you not aware of what the law the Pentateuch is what he means there, says. And now here is, you may have missed it, you may not have observed it, this is genius, actually. This is, this is very clever. Um, the false teachers are essentially saying to those uh, in Galatia, okay, good, you made a good start. Level one, you've believed in Jesus Christ. Tick, good. But now you want to move on to level two, Level two is to be a child of Abraham, like us. And to, to hit level two, 
you have to obey certain laws. So level one, good, you know, well done. But, you know, it's a bit of time you grew up, isn't it? You matured a little bit to level two and become a child of Abraham. And Paul just flips it right around and says, okay, you want to talk about children of Abraham? Let's talk about children of Abraham. And uh, you false teachers, you are not. Those people just trusting by faith in Christ, they are. That's it. Uh, That's really what he's going to say. So first off, then, he he recounts the story. There are two sons, verses 21 to 23. It, It is very simple. On one hand, you have a slave woman. That is Hagar. She has a child born in an ordinary way. And that is the root of self-reliance. There's a free woman, Sarah. She has a child born of promise, Isaac. That's the root of God's promise. There are two ways of relating to God, either on the basis of his promise or on self-reliance. That's all that's here. Let me try and uh, uh, recount the story briefly. Back in Genesis 12, then, God says to Abraham, married to Sarah, God says, you are going to have an unbelievable number of descendants unbelievably great nation is going to come from you in Genesis 12. Well, the years roll on. It gets to Genesis chapter 16. Uh, Abraham's 86. Sarah's 76. They've got no children. Sarah says, Abraham, you know what? I'm not really up for kids. I'm, you know, I'm 76 now. My body, you know, I know you think I look good and you're very charming and loyal as a husband, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm in fully functional order, age 76, to be having children. Um, you probably can um, do some work. Why don't you sleep with the slave girl, Hagar? Sleep with the slave, the, the slave girl. She's young and fertile. Sleep with her and uh, have a child. And that way, by the culture of the time, a child born by the, the slave woman would belong to the mistress. So, Abraham, look, let's be honest. It's not going to happen for you and me. Sleep with her and then we'll, you know, we'll own that child. Now Abraham says, yes, his motives may have been mixed. Uh, Abraham says, you know, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go that, we'll do that. That's, we can run with that. So he does, and Hagar is, becomes pregnant uh, and gives birth to their first son, Ishmael. Thirteen years later, God appears to Abraham again, says, Abraham, I promised you. I promised you that you and Sarah would have a child. And uh, uh, Genesis 17 now, Abraham laughs. He says, oh, come on, look at me. I'm 99. She's 89. God, and don't worry about it, God. We've got it covered. You were taking quite a long time for this to all work out, so we've got it covered, no problem. We've got Ishmael. Why don't you bless Ishmael, God? Let the blessing go upon him. So, you know, is it right? I knew you were struggling, God, but we've got it covered. You know, just bless the boy and all is well. And God says, no. You, Abraham, and Sarah will have a child within a year. And so they do. At Sarah, age 90, has the child, Isaac. Now, do you see, essentially, you've got there two ways of operating. Abraham, you know, God makes a promise to Abraham, you'll have a child. And you, all he had to do was trust that. But, you know, not so sure, this isn't working out. So he and Sarah and Hagar took the route of self-reliance. Two ways. Two ways of operating. And that's the one point that um, Paul um, really wants to pull out of this story, that they relate by themselves. They think they can fix the problem. So that's his sort of historical account. There are two sons. Then he applies it a little bit further. Well, verses 24 to 27. They, are, they represent two covenants. 
and you get a bit more detail, but it's essentially it's the same. So again, the root of self-reliance, well, that's the same as Hagar, very similar to what happened at Mount Sinai. You can talk about that as the present city of Jerusalem. Again, that's a root of slavery. Alternatively, you can take the root of promise, that's Mount Zion, that's a heavenly Jerusalem, and you'll get children of the promise, or spirit like Isaac. Same two ways of operating. He just pushes it a bit further. So verse 24, these things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. Now, not that Old Testament is one covenant, New Testament another one. Don't make that distinction. Uh, Paul is saying in the Old Testament, there were these two covenants, two ways of operating. One by promise, one by trusting yourself, self-reliance. Now, how is Mount Sinai, the giving of the law uh, to uh, Israel in uh, Exodus 20, how is that like Abraham sleeping with Hagar? We've looked at this in Galatians, but do you remember God in Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, he gives the law to Israel and says, here is how you respond to my grace. But they distort it, pervert it turn it into a ladder. They say, yeah, we can do this. We can do this law. I mean, if you were here uh, in the evenings last year, we looked at the, worked our way through Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5, they say, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep the law. We can do that, no problem. God says to them, uh, you can't. Um, not unless I give you my spirit, can you do that? But, you know, we'll do that, we'll do that, no problem. They've turned it, they turned the law into a path of self-reliance rather than what it should have been, a response to grace. Similarly, the present city of Jerusalem, Judaism of the time, was a religion of self-reliance, largely, of boasting in what they were able to do themselves, rather than a trusting in grace. Okay, so that's, you know, you've got the root there. It's all the same, he's saying. That's all just relying upon yourself, thinking you can achieve it. By contrast, verse 26, there's the root of freedom. That she, or the Jerusalem that is above, is free. She's our mother. And now we jump on a lot of, a lot of years in uh, biblical history. Verse 27 is a quote from Isaiah. At a period in history when the Israelites had been driven out of their homeland. So they'd been conquered in, uh, in battle. So Jerusalem, at this stage, when the, the quote is coming, Isaiah 54, Jerusalem is an empty city. It's derelict. It's rubble. And that represents the hopes of the nations then. But God spoke through Isaiah and said, look, no one is living in Jerusalem now, but be encouraged. I will rebuild this city and more people will come and live here than ever before. Be encouraged by that. Paul takes that quote and says, okay, you believers now in Galatia, there aren't very many of you and you're being persecuted, but be encouraged. Because in years to come, you'll see there'll be countless millions. You just wait till you get to the year 2010. There'll be millions of people just like you, trusting in God's promises in every country of the world, throughout many generations in history. There'll be millions and millions and millions of children coming from Sarah, from the line of trusting in God's promise. Millions. 
be encouraged by that. The, uh, uh, I mentioned before, um, uh, a guy I know uh, planted a church recently or uh, about 18 months ago now in uh, Croatia. So the wonderful name of Dragan Bradanovic. Um, and uh, he's planted a church there. And uh, in, uh, in Croatia, you're a cult if you're a Christian church. There's a state church which um, is very legalistic, uh, doesn't really hold to the gospel in any sense at all. Uh, to set up another church outside of the state church, you're a cult. And they are fiercely persecuted. And to them, this sort of verse is absolutely breathtaking. God says to them, be encouraged, tiny little house church of uh, a dozen people. Be encouraged. You, you may look around now and think we're fruitless. There's nothing coming from us. And you may be persecuted by this enormous state machine. But be encouraged. Because you are true children and you'll get to see maybe not in this life but certainly when you get to the next one millions and millions and billions of believers be encouraged you may feel weak you may feel frail you may feel fruitless but oh my goodness you just wait and that's Paul's encouragement then to, uh, to the people then and to us, it would feel that way now. There are two covenants. See, one is the root of self-reliance. I can, I can make God happy with me. I can win his favor. The other is a supernatural root. The, uh, it's the root of being a child of promise, verse 23, or a child of the Spirit, verse 29. This is the root of God at work in your life, trusting in him. Two very different roots that are represented here. What's well, this? Very straightforward. It's just not a root of self-reliance, trusting God's promise. Okay, let's uh, pull it out a little bit as Paul does here. Two applications then, uh, 20, well, 28 to 31. Let me, uh, let me state them and then work, look at them. The two applications would be this. Get rid of the slave woman and stand firm in freedom. I mean, that's using his language. Let's uh, look at them. Get rid of the slave woman. Sounds a bit nasty, doesn't it? But anyway, verse 28. Uh, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Those who trust in Jesus Christ, they're Abraham's children. They're Abraham's children, not anything else you might do. You're children of promise. What will happen? They'll be persecuted. Verse 29. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. Now, back in Exodus 21, uh, again, we're told that the 16-year-old, time moves on, the 16-year-old Ishmael mocks his younger brother, Isaac, who is two or something at the time. He's being weaned. I mean, it's a bit, you know, a bit odd, isn't it? 16-year-old saying, can you play football yet? Uh, spit food out all over the place. I mean, but anyway, we're not quite sure of the details, but that's what's going on. The Ishmael mocks uh, Isaac, and um, Sarah says, can we get rid of the slave woman? Can we get rid of our Ishmael, the 16-year-old? And can we get rid of Hagar, his mother? That may not have been the kindest thing. But actually, in God's providence, he says, yeah, that is right. It is right for them to go, just so it's very clear that Isaac is the child of the promise. Now, Paul makes the point, look, that will always be the way that those who rely upon themselves in relating to God, 
those who pursue a route of legalism will always persecute those who just trust in God's promises. It'll always be that way. Now, what does that look like? Well, in the UK, I mean, I think it's... uh, I don't enjoy speaking of other sort of ministers, but in the UK... Uh, again, I'd get a quite a sort of, if I have to meet with a, a liberal clergy in the Anglican tradition who, um, uh, who would not hold to the promises of God, I would get mocked. Not, I mean, sometimes it's aggressive, sometimes it's not. But uh, the mockery would be all sort of things such as, you, um, yes, you're a, bit, you're a bit old-fashioned, aren't you, really? You think that uh, you use the language people have to be, what's that annoying phrase you use? People have to be born again. Yeah, sort of Jesus' phrase. But anyway, you say that um, people have to be born again, that it's supernatural. You believe in the supernatural, don't you? People have to be born again uh, by the Spirit. I mean, that's just, just absurd, isn't it? You, you know, really, all that you need to do as a clergyman is just tell people to do, be a little better. Just encourage them just to be a little nicer, a little better. You see, if you get your sense of worth from whatever it is, swinging the incense, uh, people who can become Christians just by trusting in a promise, that's unsettling to you. Your whole life is built upon climbing a moral ladder higher and higher. And then someone becomes a Christian and uh, day one, they're on the same level as you, the same rung as you, saved. Well, that's unsettling that sort of destabilizes everything that you live for in your life don't like that a great deal and so you just persecute you just criticize you mock that goes on all the time and paul says look get rid of the slave woman that way of thinking you've got to get rid of it you can't compromise Uh, a religion of i can if i trust myself i can probably make god happy with me really Overall, you, you can't have that alongside. I trust in a promise that God made. Jesus Christ died for me. That's all I need. That's all I need. You can't run those two together. Suppose so they get rid of that. Get rid of false teachers that would teach that. Get rid of it. Now, it may well be uh, that's not our temptation, personally. But uh, let's, let's try and push it a little more closer to home. What about in ourselves? Where might we sort of drift this way? It's not that hard, is it? I think probably within every Christian lurks the sense of, I can win God's affection for me. It lurks the sense of self-reliance to to win God's approval, love, affection. And uh, that sort of characteristic, if that develops, that'll lead to... um, particularly people who are generally quite moral, uh, a smugness, uh, a sort of sense of pride, which, you know, we can all be prone to that. Um, and if you criticize them in any way, disaster. They've, they've got to lash back. Or to put it crudely, if you're the sort of person who thinks, not, not literally, it wouldn't be your creed, it wouldn't be your doctrinal statement, but in your heart, if you're the sort of person who thinks, actually, God accepts eight out of tens, Um, When I have an 8 out of 10 day, God is happy with me. If I dip below that, he's not. If I go above that, well, you know, he's lucky to know me. The, um, you know, I'm an 8 out of, you know, 8 out of 10 is really what God wants. Now, if someone comes along to you and uh, says, brother, I 
I think you've made a really bad mistake there and you need to apologize to her. If someone comes along to you and essentially says, you know what, brother, you're a six. Really? Well, you know, that, mm, you can't stand that because, you know, th- th- your whole sense of how much God enjoys you and relates to you is you've got to be an eight or God doesn't really love you. So if someone comes along and says, Do you, um, your behavior there, it wasn't great. You should apologize. There's sort of rage backwards that comes back at you because that's a sort of there's self-reliance going on in the heart. You know, someone will come up. To, I mean, it lurks in all of us. Someone can come up to me and say, um, "Yes, this morning I thought probably you were pretty off-beam. Uh, you probably missed the main point of the passage that was staring us in the face." Uh, and as well as that, you were a little bit dull. Um, and uh, now, of course, lurking in all of it, so lurking in my heart is the, you know, is the desire to sort of slightly, um, slightly rage back. And, uh, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about. Let me tell you how many books I've read. Um, let me tell you how many hours I've put into this. You know, that, you know, it's, it's there. And, you know, sometimes you sort of mentally feel the, you know, you have to say to yourself, no, get, you know, get rid of it. That's a sort of a slavish way of thinking. Slave woman, get out of, you know, what are you talking about? I don't relate to God that way. God delights in me. So I can, you know, I can preach, actually, a howler of a sermon. And feel free to tell me. The, um, but, uh, you know, I could do... And um, if I'm relating to God rightly, I can say, yeah, yeah. Actually, it was pretty bad, wasn't it? Uh, actually... Did you miss that bit? I mean, that was worse than the other bit that you're criticizing. You know, you could admit your failures. You could admit your flaws, because I'm not relating on a mark out of ten to people. So get rid of it. Get rid of a sort of slavish attitude, the desire that has to fight to justify what, who you are. Get rid of it, says Paul. Relate as children, not as slaves. Get rid of the slave woman. And related to that, of course... Stand firm in your freedom. So uh, great words of assurance here. Verse 28. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. You're the real deal. Verse 31. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but the free woman. You're the real deal because you trust God's promise, not because of how you behave. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm. Then And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Terrific words of assurance. Now again, remember the freedom that is biblical. It is a freedom that loves to serve God. Otherwise, we could get ourselves into a bit of a pickle. Um, don't, we don't want to become the sort of, <laughs> it'd be awful, sort of place someone comes up to you and says, uh, could, you, could you help me pack up a couple of chairs? Could you... Um, Could you help me with the coffee? Get away from me, slave woman. (laughs) Don't tell me to do anything. I'm free in Christ. Uh, Oh, you know, know, we we missed you in the week. You know, we we, were away. We didn't didn't see you. Get away from me, slave woman. Where I was is no business of yours. Uh, And that would be odd, um, to put it mildly. Because remember, it's not a biblical freedom is not becoming Don the homeless guy. 
It's not, I have no responsibilities. I have nothing upon me. You must never tell me what to do. That's not freedom. Because you just get enslaved to something else. Enslaved to other desires. A freedom is, I want to. I'd love to. I'll be there because I want to. So you know what? You know, I don't really want to stack, I don't really want to stack the chairs. I'd much rather not. But I, I know who my God is. I know how he thinks of me. I want, yeah, I want to serve. I mean, there's a mixture of motives going on in my heart, of course. I want to be lazy and I want to serve. But the Christian says, no, I'm going to serve. That's what I want to do when I'm thinking clearly, when I'm thinking rightly. I want to be that sort of person. Do you, know the, um, do you remember the 1980s film? I can't remember when it came out quite. Uh, the Mission. Do you remember The Mission? Uh, Robert De Niro, Jeremy Irons, Liam Neeson. I mean, it's all star cast. Uh, and a sort of memorable... What's his name? Ennio Morricone uh, theme track. So the main characters, oh, well, the, let's put it this way. Uh, the main character, for the purpose of my point, uh, is, um, is Robert De Niro. He's uh, Mendoza. So he's a, a, a debauched, immoral, slave trader. So the film is set in 18th century South America uh, somewhere, uh, the Spanish-dominated um, uh, place. And there's, um, Mendoza is a slave trader. Shouldn't really be doing that, but anyway. He is a, a legal slave trader in the region, and uh, he's immoral, debauched, sleeps around, etc., etc. Uh, apart from one day, uh, he finds his, I think it's fiancé or certainly woman, uh, in bed with his brother, uh, has a duel with his brother, kills his brother, and uh, is grief-stricken. Mendoza is Galatians. Okay. So he lived a pagan background, immoral, debauched. That's just like the the Galatians here. But he's grief-struck. So along comes, trying to be helpful, uh, Father Gabriel. Do you remember? <whistles> and he plays his oboe. Um, uh, uh, Gabriel comes along and says to him, ah, yes, what you need in your life is to do penance. That's what you need to do. Uh, so Jeremy Irons comes along to Robert De Niro. Do penance. Come and serve me at my mission up in the mountains. And, uh, you know, you, you need to do penance before God. So he does. So do you remember, if you've seen the film, Robert De Niro, he gathers up all his uh, weapons, uh, swords and guns and various other things related to the slave trade in a big net or sack and ties them to himself. So they're climbing these mountains to the mission station, which is high up some uh, waterfall. And uh, you know, it's pretty hard going. But De Niro is you know, really sort of struggling his way up um, because he's dragging behind him this dead weight. And uh, the others, Liam Neeson, keeps saying to, um, to uh, Father Gabriel, look, he's done enough, hasn't he? Let him, you know, the bloke's going to die at this rate. Cut the thing off him and, and, and just let him walk up. No, 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 he must do his penance. He must do his penance before God. And you see what's happened there? He's just had slavery imposed upon him. So there's Mendoza. He was enslaved to one lifestyle, a pagan, immoral. He has another slavery imposed upon him, religious rules. You must do penance before God. And so he's dragging this thing up and up and up. And if you've seen the film, what happens is one of the, the natives, whichever country it's meant to be uh, in, uh, in South America, one of the natives looks at him and just doesn't understand and just comes and cuts the rope. And this dead weight, this bag of weapons, and just drops and collapses down the waterfall. And uh, Mendoza just he weeps. He weeps and he weeps because, symbolically, his guilt 
goes. And it's De Niro, and you know, it's his face. Uh, and then he laughs. Uh, and he really, you know, it's a real belly. He laughs and he's rejoicing because he's now free. He goes from being enslaved to one thing, uh, an immoral lifestyle, slave to another thing, religious rule keeping. But in the film, he's freed. Eventually, he's freed and he laughs. And so he desires now to go, not forced, not coerced, not because he's guilty, not because he's doing penance. He desires to go and help at the mission station. Of course, the film ends pretty badly, if you've seen it. Um, but you get one slavery to another slavery to freedom. And Paul says, don't, yeah, don't, Galatians, whatever you do, and we'll get to this more in chapter 5, whatever you do, don't go back to the false freedom, the, the immoral freedom, the pagan freedom, but don't, don't go for a religious freedom, uh, sorry, slavery. Don't go for a religious slavery either. Don't impose those rules. Don't let anyone impose those rules upon them. A freedom is, I am a child of God. I know what my Savior has done for me. He has taken my guilt and burden. And I want to live for him. I desire to live for him, not perfectly, not this side of heaven, but I desire to live differently. So the Christian, if asked, why do you obey God? The answer is, I want to. I desire to because of what he's done for me, because of who I am now. There's no rules upon me. There's no compulsion. But God is good. He's a father. I love him. I want to serve him. And as the spirit changes me, chapter 5, I'll do so more and more and more. Let's pray that that would be true of us. Our loving Heavenly Father, you know our characters, you know our temperaments. And for each of us, it'll be different, whether we're those who uh, love to think of freedom as uh, running away from you, whether we're those who uh, think of freedom as being constrained by rules. Would we not make those mistakes? Would you help us to see what true freedom is? That actually it is an essential element of the Christian life. It is for freedom that Christ died to set us free. And so, Father, increasingly, would you grow in us the freedom that loves to serve you because of who you are, because we can trust in your promises. Would we be children who freely love to serve you, we pray. Amen.